Good morning, everyone. That's a pretty good turnout for a morning such as this. There's a debate out in the hallway. Are these the committed ones or are they the crazy ones? In all honesty, though, I want to welcome all who are watching online, too. And we know that it's very wise to stay home in in many cases. So we're glad you're here watching us and, and worshiping with us as well. Well, there's nothing more exciting uh, to lead someone to Christ or to hear someone coming to Christ and and experiencing a first love for Jesus. You know, they're on fire. Man, this is all new. It's great. But equally, there's nothing more heartbreaking than to see someone who came to Christ, but over time, they continue to fade into the, the pursuits of the world again, and they lose their first love. They lose their excitement. Uh, they lose their connection with the body of Christ. You know, I've known many, being a youth pastor for many years, I've seen a lot of kids at camps and in youth groups accept Christ, and over time they get pulled back into the world and uh, they they lose their excitement for Christ. And in some cases, um, they don't return to Christ. Well, Paul came to Thessalonica. I I practiced this word this past week, Thessalonica, ha-ha, Paul came to Thessalonica to preach the gospel, and we heard from last week that many Jews accepted, uh, or some Jews accepted Christ, but many, many Greeks, Gentiles accepted Christ, and a few prominent women, Scripture tells us, and uh, they responded to God's love for them, and Paul's main priority was to keep them persevering in their walk with Christ. He didn't just go into town and lead them to Christ, hey, well, see you later, good luck, He wasn't like that. We looked at last week. But during the time of Paul, the apostle, on his missionary journeys, uh, there were also these wandering philosophers who would go from town to town and they would teach their latest teachings and uh, to tickle the ears of the people. In many cases, these teachers believed what they said, but in most cases, uh, they really didn't care because they were coming into town just to get as much as they can to make a quick buck. They're known, they were known to dine sumptuously and lodge luxuriously at the expense of others. So when Paul came into town, this wouldn't have been foreign to the people. Here's another philosopher coming in, sharing his latest ideas about some god. Well, Paul's enemies accused him of doing the same thing, and uh, they claimed that he came into town Uh, simply uh, to gain a few bucks for himself. And they proved it because after just a few weeks to a few months, Paul took off in the middle of the night. He was gone. He was here one day, gone the next. And they said, "Uh, that, that just proves our accusation is true. But Paul didn't leave on his own accord. He, he didn't want to leave. Rather, he got kicked out uh, by the Jewish leaders there because they were fearful that they were losing influence in the city. They were seeing people come to Christ, and they did not like this. And so they turned to slander in order to discredit Paul in the message of the gospel. They said, Paul is a shyster. He's just trying to get at your wallet or gain, gain your allegiance for his own power trip like Charles Manson, or Jim Jones from Jonestown, or um, David Koresh from Waco, Texas. You know, you've been deceived by this silver-tongued teacher, and you've responded with all this emotionalism, but get a grip now. He left. He's gone. He's a shyster. So they slandered Paul. 
I've known a few close pastor friends who were falsely accused of serious matters, and I'm convinced of their innocence, uh, but they experience a great deal of pain. Um, in, in all three cases, all three pastors, by the way, if you're wondering, they're all out of state, um, and in some cases from other denominations, but the three that I knew really well are no longer in the ministry because of the slander that just took them out of the ministry. But what does Paul do? Apostle Paul seeks to defend himself from the accusations unleashed against him and against the gospel. And you might be thinking, Paul, dude, you're the great apostle. You don't have to defend yourself. You know, in many cases, when one seeks to defend themselves, the harder they seek to defend themselves, the more unbelievable they become, you know? And Paul, just, just trust in God. Remain silent. Let him fight your battles, right? And that's what we would think. Doesn't it seem that more people seek to defend themselves, the more guilty they are? Well, it depends. You know, sometimes Paul defended himself. Other times he just walked away. Sometimes it's, it's right to remain silent, and other times it's right to speak up in defense. But how can we know what is appropriate when we're falsely accused? I think it comes down to one's motives. If our primary motive is to protect our own reputation, our self-interest, or our personal gain, hey, man, you cut, you cut in front of me, man, or... or I didn't budge in line. What are you talking about? I, I was here all the time or whatever, you know. It, it may be right to wait on God's timing or just to hold your tongue and walk away and say, you know what? I'm called to die to my rights as a Christ follower anyway and my, my self-interest. However, if one's motive is to protect and defend others who are weaker or those in distress, then it's always right to speak up on their behalf. It's always right to speak up and fight for the rights of the unborn. It's always right to speak up for victims of abuse and go to bat for them. Well, Paul's motives were to protect these new believers from the lies that they were spreading, the lies of these accusers that could lead, lead the people to question the gospel and then fall away from Christ. They received him with enthusiasm, but because of the slanderous lies, Paul was concerned that they would not believe the gospel any longer or walk away from it. So Paul's motives were not to protect his own reputation, but to confirm the truth of the gospel that he preached. So he begins in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 with verse 1. He says, you know, you know this. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. What results? Well, the re results were your lives are radically changed. Can't you see how transformed you are? So don't believe the lies from these Jewish leaders. Hang in there. Persevere. Remain faithful to the gospel. However, Paul couldn't be confident that these believers were remaining faithful to the gospel when he heard about these false accusations, because Paul wasn't with them any longer. He was run out of town. And so it wasn't really until the writing of this First Thessalonians, this letter to the Thessalonians, 
In chapter 3, did Timothy wander in in the course of him writing the letter and report that, hey, these New Thessalonian believers, they're remaining strong, they're persevering. And so this encouraged Paul's heart. Paul said in verse uh, in chapter 3, 5, and 6, he said, I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that your labors might have been in vain. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and your love. And so Paul was ecstatic. He was so encouraged to hear that these new believers were remaining steadfast in the midst of even persecution. But at this point in chapter 2, Paul was very concerned because he was not aware of this news. So how did Paul seek to defend himself and therefore defend uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ so that the new believers wouldn't lose faith, uh, faith and fall away? I'm going to share with you, I think, six accusations that were unleashed against Paul. And we don't hear the ex- accusations uh, verbatim, but we see by his responses that he was addressing an accusation. So the first accusation was Paul is only in it for himself. Paul's response was in verse 2. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell his gospel in the face of strong opposition. Paul's saying, listen, I got kicked out of Philippi just weeks earlier. And in Philippi, uh, they took us, you know, Silas, Timothy, and I, and they, they took us and, and they, they stripped us and they scourged us with these, you know, scourges on our back, which tore open wounds in our back. And then they placed us in prison and then they spread false accusations against us as if to put our faces on mugshot on the front page of the newspaper in today's terms. They mocked us. They threw us in a dungeon. Um, And yet, despite the great risk, despite the fact that we are coming to you right now, our wounds are still open and they're still in, in great pain. We're coming to you to share this gospel. Do you think if we were in it for ourselves, we'd be doing this? We're not that crazy. If we're to gain it, if we're only looking for our own gain, we wouldn't be so foolish to come to you. If Paul's motives were for health and wealth and prosperity in the eyes of his hearers, if his motives were to live a comfortable life, a secure life, a successful life, a life of self-preservation, then, man, he was, he was in the wrong line of work. No, he went purely out of the love for the lost in the sake of the gospel. The second accusation unleashed against Paul was this. Paul's preaching is filled with impure motives and lies and trickery and deception. So how did Paul respond? He responded in verse 3. For the appeal we make does not spring out of error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On On the contrary... We speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Paul says our motives are to present the gospel, period. This, these were his motives anywhere he traveled. In, in, in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians, he writes, Though I am free and belong to no one, 
I've made myself a slave to everyone. Here's the motive. To win as many as possible to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I preached nothing more than Christ crucified and him raised from the dead. This, these were his motive. this was his motive. Furthermore, we didn't use trickery to gain your following or woo you out of your money and then sneak out in the middle of the night with, with all this cash that we earned from Thessalonica. We didn't do that. We didn't want to leave um, Philippi. We didn't want to leave Thessalonica. We got run out of town. Um, there's a reason that one of the fastest growing businesses in, um, in our country is the timeshare exit industry and the lawyers. You can hire lawyers to get out of your timeshare. because Timeshares can be really great things. We've benefited from them. And they're not a bad thing. However, there's a rapidly increasing number of timeshare owners who are trying to get out of uh, the obligations that they once made um, because they feel like they were deceived up front and, and they weren't informed about the constantly increasing maintenance fees, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's lawyers on TV to we're for hire to get out of your timeshare, right? We didn't, Paul said, we did not sneak out, out in the middle of the night. We would have chosen not to leave you. We wanted to remain with you. Um, if we try to water down the gospel with lies and half-truths, avoid things that we think might offend someone, um, then it's not hard to imagine why people would feel deceived and betrayed and walk away from the faith. You know, if we were really smooth talkers, we could say like, uh, you know what? Um, Jesus just wants you to believe. You really don't have to obey because that's a work. And we're not saved by works. We're saved by just belief, by faith. And so people come into Christ, oh, okay, I'll believe. I want to go to heaven. All right, and they go out and live as normal, as they always have. No change. Or another half-truth would be you don't have to repent. You don't have to turn your life around. Just believe. Or you don't have to count the cost to become a follower of Jesus. What, what does that mean anyway? Uh, or, you know, God sends everyone to heaven. You know, hell is just a made-up concept. Or God's word is constantly changing to fit the cultural changes. And so uh, there are a lot of preachers who preach the prosperity gospel. You know, God wants to bless everyone. Just have to believe, 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 and he'll give you prosperity and riches and wealth. So don't forget to give in the offering plate today. Again, Paul says our only motive for coming to you is to preach the gospel. That Jesus came, he suffered, he died, he rose again to give us salvation. Now, continue to walk in that same salvation and persevere. Third accusation. You know, Paul's message is always changing. He, he, he just wants to tickle the ears of his listeners. He's just a people pleaser. His response in verse 4 was, we're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. The accusers would have um, accused Paul of watering down the gospel because the gospel is this freedom you can experience and this grace, this free gift. No, no, no. The law of God must be obeyed. The law of God, you must earn God's approval. You must uh, keep the Sabbath laws. You, you, you must obey all the commands. You must get circumcised. Otherwise, God will punish the unfaithful. 
The Jewish leaders preached the law, and they could not understand this freedom of grace. God's grace and forgiveness, they are available even to the worst of sinners when we repent and turn to him. And it can sound too good to be true. Can't be that easy. Salvation. Fourth accusation. Paul will do or say anything to get at your wallet, as we already mentioned. In verse 5, he addresses this specifically. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up our greed. God is our witness. And then in verse 9, Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and our hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. In other words, hey, if our motives were to get as much money as we could from you, then why in the world did we work hard and not depend on you for anything? Why did we model for you our self-sufficiency here? Um, We were tent makers. You know, we worked for ourselves. Many pastors from smaller churches um, can't afford full-time ministry in those places because the churches don't have enough members to support them. We are very blessed at Countryside, and thank you for your support of us. But many pastors who can't do so, like my brother, who lives in Minnesota, he is literally a tent maker. And that word tent maker, he's not literally a tent maker, he is a tent maker. The literal word for tent maker comes from the Apostle Paul and his friends who were professional tent makers. They'd go into town and they would earn their own living by by making tents. And therefore they could never be accused of just doing ministry or sharing the gospel for uh, financial gain. So my brother and many pastors I know are tent makers, pastors. They have other jobs and then they still pastor churches. This is what Paul was. The fifth accusation Uh, Paul is just an egomaniac. He's only after power and prestige, you know, the megachurch pastor, you know. He just wants to build his church. He wants to become well-known. He wants to go out into the world, you know, uh, through through video and whatever, you know. His response in verse 6, we were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. A guy named Herbert Swoop once said, I cannot give you the formula for success, but I can give you the formula for failure, which is try to please everybody. Lesson learned from those in the ministry. Um, And then Oswald Chambers said, here's what it looks like to please God. He said, when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. And everything else would be the opinions of people. You know, sometimes we make decisions in this church as a leadership team and staff, and sometimes, you know, it's 50-50, as I've mentioned before, like especially during COVID, but, you know, every year of my ministry, I have to make hard choices, and it displeases some people. They don't understand. They only know part of the conversation. They don't, they don't know the conversation that we've had for weeks and sometimes months to make the decision and perfectly make a decision that we make and it falls on ears critical ears and so we get an unle- a lashing out from people sometimes and uh, again though I feel very incredibly blessed and, and we on staff do as well 
because of this church. It's been so gracious to us. The sixth accusation. Paul is ultra-controlling. It's got to be his way or the highway. Verse 6. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority, instead we were like young children among you. This word asserted authority means to lay a heavy weight upon one's shoulders, to coerce them and manipulate them in order to get your way. We could have done that because we had God's blessing as apostles. Plenty of people operate like this. They assert their authority. When they don't get their way, they either move on or people move them on, right? We've all known people like that. But Paul was not like that at all. His leadership style instead was like a little child. What did he mean by that? Like a young child. What are young children? Well, they're humble and they're approachable. There's a, call, there's a show called Old People's Home for Four-Year-Olds that went viral some years ago. It was an experiment conducted over an eight-week uh, period. Four-year-olds went into a nursing home, and what they discovered that over the period of eight weeks, a huge transformation took place. The residents who were recluse came out of their shell. The residents who were depressed found a new lease in life. People who, were bar- could, who could barely move in the nursing home were participating in running races and freely walking. In eight weeks, these four-year-old children were able to achieve outcomes unachieved by years of professional support and therapy. The children never exercised their authority, but they were able to get out of the old people, they were able to get these old people to do things that these old people never thought that they could even do themselves. This was Paul's style of leadership. It was a humble style of leadership. We think of the mighty Apostle Paul laying down the law and being the authority figure coming into town. He said, no, man, I, I get accused of being fearful. And, and, and um, I don't know the term. I can't remember the term. Uh, when I go into towns, I often get accused of being fearful and, and timid when I'm with you. And then I write these letters to you from a distance. Paul's attitude was humble and approachable. Paul's attitude was also sacrificial as we looked at this verse last week in verse 7. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. Now this is a powerful image for an authority figure to use. You know, our leadership style is like a nursing mother. In every age, every time, Every culture, nursing mothers are respected and they're lifted up for the example of self-sacrifice, love, and compassion, and nurture. And the emotional connection is so strong that even after a few hours of birth, a mother can recognize her child's, her baby's cry amidst all the other cries. And there will be times when her body suffers for the sake of her child whom she loves so much. And this is a type of leadership that Paul demonstrated, like a nursing mother. 
And then another characteristic about Paul was in his leadership was he was a godly example. In verse 10, you are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy and righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. In other words, he said, we sought to be your examples for Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ, Paul said. There's a, one of the missionaries to China named Hudson Taylor, 19th century missionary. He, he came up with this idea. Uh, he was the first to come up with the idea of, in missions to um, accommodate to the culture in the ways that you could to reach them, become like these people in order to reach them. And so he would dress like the Chinese dressed, like in this picture, this next picture, I think. Not like the nursing mother. You could switch again. Oh, are you stuck up there? Oh. Okay, there's no picture. Rats. I thought I had one of... Oh, there he is. There he is. Yeah, he dressed like that. Hudson Taylor. And Hudson Taylor uh, was having great effect in China as a missionary. And so years ago, a communist government in China commissioned an author... Um, to write a biography on Hudson Taylor with the purpose of distorting the facts and presenting him in a bad light. Um, they wanted to discredit his name and his, the Christian uh, message in the gospel. But as the author did his research, he was increasingly impressed by Taylor's saintly character and godly life, and he found it incredibly difficult to carry out his assigned task with a clear conscience so eventually, at the risk of losing his own life, he put down his pen and he renounced his atheism and received Christ as his, his Savior. And it wasn't the way Hudson Taylor preached or taught or even led that led this man to Christ, but it was how Hudson Taylor lived his life by his godly example. And that's what Paul was saying. You know, we, we seek to live like Jesus. And um, you can see that we are trying to be like Jesus. And so we're not out, we're not out to uh, deceive you. You know, more is caught, caught than taught. And then we read in verse 11, For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Like a father who encourages, comforts, and urges, or motivates. You know, I think of a dad in the stands, any, any high school, middle school, pre-middle school game you go to, or soccer game, or activity, or choir concert, you'll see parents, yeah, cheering in the stands like this, and it's so delightful now that we're empty nesters to go to games like this, and uh, just kind of observe people, and watch their kids. We went to a wrestling match, and I was watching parents more than the wrestlers. It was just so fun, right? Um, because what, what father doesn't long to see his child succeed? Um, but parents can display a myriad of emotions from stress to joy to anger and frustration or sadness. But look at, look at Paul's response. He said, this is how I respond. He focused on encouraging, comforting, and motivating these are all positive, grace-filled words, not shaming words. Like, come on, kid, you can do better than that. You're not trying. Come on, get, get going, be strong. This is not how, how I taught you. And you see sometimes fathers and mothers in the stands just almost criticizing their kid or others. 
No, Paul used grace, words of grace and empowerment and encouragement when he wrote his letters. He didn't seek to shame people. And sometimes when he did shame them, he, he came back and encouraged them afterwards. Because that was his motivation. Paul's words were like a committed cheerleader in the stands. The greatest, you know, your best cheerleader. Sort of like, you know, Taylor Swift cheering for T Travis Kelsey, right? By the way, you're here today, this morning, and you can say, hey, we're committed ones. Uh, you're, all, you're committed when you go to a Kansas City Chiefs game last night at Arrowhead Stadium. Those are the committed crazy ones, aren't they? Holy smokes. Lynn and I really enjoyed the game laying on our couches. It was nice. In 72-degree heat. Um, and then the, there, there's one more accusation before I conclude. And we looked at six accusations. We looked at Paul's character. Uh, now we're going to look at one final accusation. Uh, Paul, you are suffering because of your sin. And by the way, people of Thessalonica, uh, you are suffering too because you're believing in Paul, who is a sinner, who is disobedient, who is, who is displeasing God, and that's why he's suffering, and you're going to suffer just like he suffers. And so we think that too. We think, you know, we're suffering. We're going through these hard times because I did something wrong, and God is punishing me, you know. And but his response was in verse 14. You know, brothers and sisters... Uh, for you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and also drove us out. Suffering as a Christ follower is not a consequence for your disobedience. It's the result of your faithful obedience. Suffering oftentimes is a badge of honor. You're not alone in your suffering, young believers. You're experiencing what your fellow Jews experienced. You're experiencing what your Savior experienced. You're experienced, experiencing what the prophets experienced and what we experience today as missionaries. So if you experience it, you're in good company. You're blessed by our, our God and our Father. But this issue of suffering in America can be, seem such a foreign concept to us raised in the West. Because we kind of have bought in in some ways to the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Bless me, Lord. Bless me, Lord, Keith Green used to sing. That's all I ever hear. No one hurts. No one aches. No one even sheds one tear. They just want God's blessing in his song. And when we don't get the blessing, it's because some disobedience in our life or some lie that we're believing Paul says, don't question your faith when you're suffering. Rather, see it as a sign of your faithful perseverance for Christ. There's one more characteristic to Paul, and then I'll conclude, I promise. Paul exposed the lies, and he promoted the truth. That was one, one last characteristic. He, he exposed the lies because... He wanted to protect the people from lies, which could lead them astray, and he promoted the truth. There are so many lies that are being promoted in our culture today. You know, just get on Facebook for half a second, 
or watch TV or listen to a top 40 song and just listen to the words and the philosophy behind the songs. And, you know, we're just barraging ourselves with, we're being barraged by lie after lie after lie after lie. And pretty soon the lie becomes the truth and the truth becomes a lie, right? And that's what we're seeing in our culture. I just got scanned because of Facebook this past week. Um, it was about six days ago, five days ago, I think I was scrolling through and I thought, oh, that looks good. I never buy anything. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to buy it. I have time and I pressed on it and put my credit card information on there and it turned out to be a scam. And so we had to cancel our credit cards and uh, it's a mess. It wasn't very much, but we had to cancel our cards uh, to protect our identity, etc. But how can we possibly discern the truth amidst all the lies? Well, first of all, here's the truth. Don't buy anything off of Facebook, all right? <laughs> Don't ever. And that, that's what the guy from, from Master or Visa, uh, Bank of America, they said, don't ever, ever, ever buy anything off of Facebook because 99% of it are scams. I said, lesson learned. I got it. The first and only time I bought something off of Facebook. How can we possibly discern the truth? Paul says, by knowing and teaching the truth of God's word unapologetically, because there's great power in the word of God. Even though we're being barraged by lies, when we expose ourselves to the truth of God's word by coming to church, by getting our kids involved in church, by, not, by making it a prior, they, your top priority to get your family in the family of God in church. That's our top priority. Because if we don't, then the culture and the lives of the culture will, will sweep our kids down that stream. I don't say that as fear. I say, I say that as a fact. Because I've seen it time, hundreds of times before in families. Where when, anyway. Verse 15, I'll conclude with this. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. In other words, Paul is exposing the lies of, of the opposition, the lies of the liars. And, and he said, this is what they're trying to do to you. Don't believe them. And he did so as he continues on his letter by, by promoting the truth, continue to promote the truth of God's word. Paul's only motive for defending his actions, his only motive was to protect the young believers in Thessalonica from believing the lies and thereby causing them to fall away from the faith. He wanted to promote the gospel so that they would continue to persevere. That was his only motive. And that's what he focused chapter 2 on today. My question is, how do you respond when you're falsely accused by someone? We can learn from Paul's character. We can learn from how he responded in chapter 2. And I know there was a lot, you know, like seven different ways he defended himself. And when is it appropriate to defend ourselves when is it appropriate to just remain silent and let God be our defense? And so, we, again, we can learn from the Apostle Paul. You know, when it's for, your, for our own personal gain and reputation, then sometimes, most times, it's, it's okay to remain silent, commit it to God, or address it peacefully. But 
when it comes to others who you see, you, you see that they're stumbling because of the lies from others, then it's always right to stand up for them, to protect them, to provide the truth for them for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for the example that we received from the Apostle Paul and what we can learn from him. Um, I know this was kind of a heady chapter, uh, but Lord, there is application for each one of us too. Pray that as we uh, sat under the authority of your word, Lord, and as we allow your spirit to um, continue to work in our minds and in our hearts to massage it within us, Lord, I pray, God, that you bless everyone who heard this message today and pondered this message either if they're in the sanctuary or watching online, I pray, Lord, that you, by your Spirit, will continue to apply it to our lives and transform us to make us more like your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.